everybody. Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Ashley and Danny. And today we are going to talk about the history of gun control. Or gun laws, because like I think... Gun like, laws. Yeah, like I feel like we're going to touch on like laws that aren't control. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That that was a poor phrasing. Yeah, it's okay. It's because we've been we, emailing back and forth calling it that. So. so like we've talked about how gun laws impact museums, but this is much... But that's a really narrow look at firearms law and like the present and let, and we're looking real, at like there's only like 10 of us that care <laughs> right yeah there's only there's not many people yeah. that care about that but um, um but we were we've always chatted Danny and i offline have always chatted about this because it's it's something that's really fascinating like how gun laws you know come to be and who they affect um and there's a lot of talk about it you know in the in the mainstream i hate using that as like a separating gun people from the mainstream, but, but it's easy to classify, you know, mainstream versus a gun community perspective on laws um, throughout history. And so for today's episode, because Danny and I, we find it to be a really good breaking point, but also because we really didn't like prep the 20th century, we're going to start way, way back. So don't expect Malford Act today. Sorry. Uh, yeah. That's the one everybody keys in on when this topic well, I comes almost up. Said, we're not going to talk about Malford Act. Sorry, NRA. <laughs> Um, but actually aren't they kind of happy we're not talking about i know it was ironic ah right uh i get jokes i'm making jokes (laughs) so um we're gonna start really with kind of like the earliest gun laws briefly overseas and then we're gonna focus on u.s gun laws pre-us and up through the post-civil war and into the early west and then next week we'll talk more about the immersion of federal regulatory bureaus and the laws that come about uh, the the three letter laws that come about in the the ones that we're still doing actually still everything we're talking about today is not really in force anymore. It's just sort of the roots of the things we talk about next week. Or up, are they still enforced through Ooh. wink wink? Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> deals. Have we really changed as a society? Actually, is a lot of this question. Uh, Great question. So. I don't have an answer. I don't either. You guys can decide for us because we're academics, so we like to spew shit but not solve any problems. Uh, That's how we roll. So um, I'll start a little bit with Europe just because it's something that I've written about a lot, and I did an exhibition where we talked about this. So, And then we'll pop over into the the colonies. But um, a lot of the times when we as a museum talk about early gun laws, we – tend to trace it to um, the nobility overseas in Europe and them creating policies and plans for not only outright bans of firearms, but also early concealed carry, you know, not concealed carry, but early carry like permits, um, hunting permits. I mean, all of that stuff really does have a very long lineage. Um, and the earliest like outright, I'm quoting air quotes right now, ban that I know of is Emperor Maximilian with the development of the wheelock. And uh, basically that concept was, you know, they developed the wheelock. It's the first type of firearm that doesn't have like burning, like external burning rope features. Um, so theoretically, you know, you could conceal a wheelock pistol um, and get, you know, within, you know, shooting distance of, of someone like nobility or a, a, you know a royal figure, and so they were very worried about the uh, feasibility of assassination um, with this new technology. Now we also have to like explain that like wheelocks weren't exactly small, but I feel like people were wearing pretty big clothes back then, or were they? Naked? Yeah, like we're talking. I think like 
in terms of modern carry, we're talking like a coat over the top or something. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, like a coat pocket or something like that. I would like to go on record and say that I I want to believe that somebody attempted to carry a matchlock like concealed and then burnt their pants off. Right? Like you like someone was like, this is gonna be fine. <laughs> This this will be fine. Or, this is you know what could be really badass? Like if you were carrying a matchlock and then like constantly were smoking a cigar and then you were like, oh yeah, the bam, you pull the matchlock out and then you go with a cigar. You know, take that, you know, royalty who's worried about assassination. I, I think we just wrote a movie plot for like some renaissance something set in like the late medieval early yeah. renaissance period well it actually the first assassination with a handgun or the first assassinations are not with a handgun but the first assassination with a firearm they think it was a matchlock Ooh, they th- you know it's inconclusive um oh gosh and the year is escaping me um on it but they uh, like if you go to wikipedia i think it says matchlock and i've done some more research on it um uh, it was a carbine it was not a handgun but there's depictions of it where it's like a matchlock wheel lock because timing wise it's in the 1500s um so wheel lock technology is around i think it's 1575 maybe um and so but there's a lot of like nobody really knows but i do think it's kind of ironic that like you know 50 around 1509 the wheel locks invented invented and like they create this hand this ban of wheel locks and then if the first true assassination with a gun with uh, assassination with a firearm was a matchlock it's kind of like whoops you know and that's kind of like a lot of gun laws is like we pass you know i don't like you know let's this thing scares me so like i'm gonna ban this one to protect me and then i get shot with older technology you know it's I feel like it's, it's a perfect like, setup for all of like gun law history. It does feel a lot like there's some parallels to what are sometimes call, called, and our viewers can't see this because I'm doing air quotes, but loopholes. Yeah, well, that is yeah, and and there is a wheel like that's used <laughs> after that. Um, so so there are assassinations, but I mean, how readily were they happening? I haven't looked into like actual crime rates you know because it's an assassination of someone royal especially back then like that's you plan that out you know whereas like what you know are there any shifts in crime rates like amongst the people um but the uh, right and you also have to think like is that commission is like is it you know in warring realms of europe in that time is this like a commissioned hit or is it a a dissatisfied you know surf that's doing it Um, because yeah yeah and then the other laws that you see over in europe which will um kind of push over but i don't think i think for the purposes of these this these two episodes danny we probably shouldn't focus too hard on hunting laws because they're their own breed um but there are carry permits that are you know issued over in europe um early in firearms history if you're caught without a hunting license on the king's land um you know the king's landing like every day um, you know, you can be sentenced to death for poaching. I mean, they took it very, very seriously. Um, and then, you know, according to our panel on gun laws in the museum, you know, only the crown and their most loyal subjects uh, were capable of getting fired. So, you know, there was this kind of real idea of nepotism in the beginning of firearms carry laws um, and the ability to buy a firearm. Um, by the 1600s, there is an emerging middle class and those people are owning firearms. Uh, so there is a shift and I'm no like expert on all of the laws that happen in Europe. But I think 
what really sets off this conversation is the idea that if it's the crown and their most loyal subjects that can get firearms, you know, there is a regulation in place, but is that regulation actually doing anything to help or is it nepotism? And so now we go overseas. It was definitely, it was definitely a May issue kind of place, not a shale issue for our modern listeners. But yeah, then we, then we move overseas to colonial America. And obviously the first colonies are all these sort of, you know, very closely controlled by their, well, maybe closely is probably the wrong word, but um, all established by the various European countries, you know, there's Dutch colonies and English colonies and Spanish colonies. So they bring over whatever tradition of gun law and other law already existed. And obviously some people that were maybe fleeing these governments um, tried to come up with more autonomy and autonomy grew over time. So it's a very fluid situation when we're talking about firearms law and really law in general in the colonies. And from our perspective, it's also really hard to get at. We can read what, you know, we have enough primary source material to say, all right, here's what the laws said. That stuff has survived. But what is harder to get at is how was it actually enforced? Because even in today where like everything's available online and you know the instant a law, a new law is passed for your jurisdiction, especially when like high profile gun laws, um, there's a different level of, there's even stuff that goes by, like there's even gray areas today in enforcement. And I'm sure that existed back in the colony. So we're, we're sort of speculating based off what the laws themselves said. It's really tough to know how are these being enforced? Exactly. And um, so I think like, I'd love to, if you don't mind any, like I, I, I'm looking at a website and I'm going to give a shout out to someone I don't know. So I hope that you're a good person, but Steve Eckwall, um, your like summary of all of these different laws is really helpful because he's got the actual word, you know, the actual verbiage on a lot of these laws, which is really interesting. Um, but what's, what I find kind of fascinating. So I'd like to read a couple of them from the colonies, but you know, we can do colonies, you know, America and then civil, you know, civil war. Um, but what's interesting about, you know, we, I mentioned nepotism and then I don't really, I've never looked too hard into the concept of race over, you know, in Europe. And if there's any laws that are prohibitive of race, but when you get over into, you know, the colonies, uh, pre United States, you do see that it's a lot of laws are specifically race-based. And then when you get into early America, you see a lot of race-based, but then also uh, like a a certain financial demographic, so an economic class as well, Um, which is going to be really interesting when we talk about the 20th century, because that is a big part of that. So I'm just going to read some of these, Danny, and then you can interrupt me and we can kind of talk about them. I also, I also have a favorite that I would like to read. Oh. So you oh, go no, first. No, no, you might, okay. Oh, well, is it the first one? Cause I'll start with the first one that he quotes. Cause it's. Oh, mine's the first one from a different source, okay, cool. um, but it's the same place and roughly the same time. So mine's Virginia in 1639. Okay. And the quote, the, the, the quote from the law is all persons except Negroes to be provided with arms and ammunition or be fined at the pleasure of the governor and council. And the reason I zeroed in on that one is because one, I think it shows where we're going with this is that there's obviously a race-based component to a lot of these early laws in the colonies. Um, But there's also on the flip side of it, there's like a subsidy program to get people guns. So Virginia wanted all the white males in the colony to be armed for a variety of reasons. uh, And they were 
they made a provision to like, I guess, assuming that somebody couldn't arm themselves, they could be provided with something um, the way that reads to me. Again, how that was actually enacted is tougher to get at. But yeah, it's this idea that like one class of people is to be provided arms. Another class of people is to be excluded absolutely entirely. Yeah. And from Virginia, this one has for 1640 is the prohibiting Negroes, slave and free. And that's the important thing because a lot of people who don't are familiar with American history don't realize that there are free blacks in the United States or in the colonies, you know, the whole, you know, the whole time. And, I, uh, and actually, I think, and I might be wrong with this, but if I'm, I'm going back into like Ashley goes to Colonial Williamsburg as a child, I'm pretty sure that actually the first slave in the, in the Virginia colonies was, was an indentured servant and was white. Because um, there's also indentured servitude, which I never thought about until this very moment. I'd love to see, like, were, were white indentured servants allowed to own guns, but free blacks weren't? I would, sorry. I now want to find that out, um, you know, because it's the same, it, you know, it's a, it's a servitude position, you know, and, and, and from what I've skimmed on a lot of these, it's a lot of race commentary um, and not necessarily the servitude in and of itself. Um, so this, so 1640 is prohibiting Negroes, slave and free from carrying weapons, including clubs. So it's not just firearms. Um, and then there's another one that I find interesting because this comes into the, you know, it's not just, you know, free and enslaved black people, but it's pretty much everyone that's an other to the colonists. So it's that all such free mulattoes, uh, Negroes and, and Indians uh, shall appear without arms. Um, so it's not just, you know, one race. It's like, it, it really is a, an, an us versus them mentality of the people who came, you know, um, I'm not, I'm going to say England because that's, you know, where we're, the area we're talking about, you know, came over from England. Um, and you wonder to some extent, Danny, is some of this, you know, not, this is in no way condoning this behavior, but are these people, you know, because people who are escaping to the colonies, you know, from England are not necessarily the upper crust of England. You know, they want to make a name for themselves in America mm -hmm. in a class system that they can't necessarily make a name for themselves in England. So like, are they doing the same bullshit, you know, and then get over, you know, into America that was done to them, which also like, come on guys, you know, somehow the buck has to stop somewhere. But like, is that yeah. You know, part of the mentality of it is like, hey, I can't be, you know, the upper crest elite in England, but I can be in America. And instead of being like, I sympathize with everybody else that felt the way I felt, it's, you know, instead of being progressive, you know, it's I'm now going to, you know, subjugate other people. We're getting into some very deep Sorry. questions about human nature and good versus evil, I think. <laughs> it's true, but it is interesting, you know. It's like, do we, like, does nobody ever learn? <laughs> it's kind of the same Right. Thing. I find these really interesting for the fact um, that they, they'll mention firearms, but they often mention arms. And, you know, there's, there's obviously we're concerned, you know, given that we're firearms historians with the firearms aspect, but at the time it's almost viewed as like arms. We, I don't care if it's a knife. I don't care if it's a bow. I don't care if it's gun. Like I don't want you armed with anything at all. Yeah. Um, and a firearm was just another arm. It's, I guess it's, 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 it's interesting to me to see how it's just all lumped together um, without sort of specifying type or capability or anything like that. It's just, arms of any kind. Yeah. And, you know, so those are, you know, that we read Virginia, but Virginia is not the only place that does this. Um, mm -hmm. And what's, you know, and in these early colonies, I mean, they don't mince their words. I mean, you know how like today we're like, oh, you know, people of a certain economic class, because you don't want to like 
say. Right. Um, and, and these people were just like straight up, like, no, no Indians, <laughs> you know, no black, right. um, no people of mixed race. You know, they were very clear, you know, that they did not want those people owning guns. Um, and that, you know, the punishment for it, it was, it, is serious because on our timeline at the museum, we have that, you know, the, the people who sold um, fire, who got caught selling firearms to the, to the native peoples, um, they were, I mean, it was ultimately the, the sentence was um, lessened, but initially they were sentenced to death. So like, you know, if it's not just them, but like if you are caught selling to them, you know, you are, you know, they, they, they take that very seriously in the colonies. Right. There's this, there's a whole nother aspect of, um, you know, often in the colonies, the perceived threat and probably the most present threat to them was it like war on a large scale with native Americans and the various tribes. And not on just, the East Coast. Oh, sorry, I'm more excited. But, and so like the trade was a whole nother area of right. There's obviously like the enslaved regulations that we're talking about right now, but there's a whole nother area of how over time various like laws against the sale of firearms to especially native Americans um, were enacted, especially after like major conflicts, like, um, I think like King Pontiac's war or something like that, where, um, there's this devastating conflict and then, uh, firearms trade with native Americans is prohibited. And that, you know, it varies from time period, but it's almost, it's very often like the death penalty. If you're caught trading firearms to native Americans, the amazing thing is that so many people still did it. And this is partly like the parent countries are also doing government sanctioned trades. Yeah. You know, they're sort of forbidding the individual from trading, but then they, as part of treaties and their own uh, economic interests, they will also then sell firearms more officially yeah. to native Americans. Um, but because of both of those sources, firearms among native Americans become extremely prevalent. I think that's one thing we have in our mind when we're talking about, despite all these laws, like there are still firearms ending up, you know, the just reading the laws that paints this picture that no native person, no enslaved person would ever carry a firearm around. But there's almost always going to be some exception to that. Yeah. And that was what I was going to interrupt you on. So you hit the point anyway, so I'm glad I shut up. But that's, you know, there's a lot of bans in the colonies from uh, of selling firearms to Native Americans. But then, you know, it does become almost like um, the the different when we go to war with different countries, you know, in the pre-revolution, you know, native peoples become very valuable um, and important to, you know, France and, and England, you know, it becomes a, well, we don't, you don't sell to native Americans, but like these native Americans are cool, you know? And so it right. becomes, it's, it's so, it's just so confusing and messed up. And then you come into, um, you know, the, the second amendment, being ratified in 1791, and I'm going to read it, but we're not going to get into the, you know, comma, no comma word debate, because there are scholars that can fight that forever and always. Um, but the, you know, the Second Amendment gets ratified in 1791, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, and then what I find interesting about that is then by 1792, we're like, mm, but also it's white people. <laughs> 
Like, it's like, it's like, you know, did the founding fathers, like, were they trying to be more progressive? And then like, they were like, oh, never mind. You know, they got pressured or, you know, did they not think of like, you know, it's, it's interesting that then they, they come with the militia act, you know, the uniform militia act of 1792, which calls for the enrollment of, as a quote of every free able-bodied white male citizen between the ages of 18 and 45 to be in the militia. And so it's interesting that then it's like, it's like a moment of like, you know, ambiguity. And then it's like Mm -hmm. clarified really fast about who. Yeah. And it's followed up pretty quickly with a lot of laws, especially in the South, you know, reinforcing those colonial ideal ideas of you can't, you know, your free blacks, enslaved blacks, they can't have guns. Like it's just sort of these wholesale bans on it um, throughout the early Republic. Like I said, especially in the South. And what people, some people I don't think realize is um, during the formulation of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, um, you know, the the founding fathers were obviously very important documents, but this idea of a federal, like, nationalized entity was not as important as the states to a lot of those people. You know, so while, Mm -hmm. like, I I think if I remember from, like, when I was younger, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote a lot of this, but then he was like, okay, but peace, I'm going to go write it for my, you know, I'm going to go write it for my state, you know? And so it was like, it's not like it is today, you know, where, and we'll talk about that next week with the kind of transition into being a more federalized, you know, nationalized, you know, concept. And so it, you know, it's this ambiguous thing, but then it's left to the interpretation of the states. And, you know, obviously the states have very specific ideas of this. Um, And an interesting thing that goes beyond just, you know, the concept of who can own guns um, in terms of like the individual race or economic class, there are fights by the early 1800s, especially uh, I think in Kansas, I think is one of them, uh, on what does the Second Amendment mean? So this concept of individual right versus militia right, which has been, you know, currently under Heller, it is, you know, the militia right, it is reinforces, or sorry, not militia right, an individual right. But there was, I think in 1813, there was a ruling um, in a state that, you know, the Second Amendment referenced an individual right. And then I think like 1822, you know, somebody else in another state says it's a militia right. And so those topics of debate are early on as well. You know, I, I had someone from a production company who will main, remain nameless who made a kind of side comment of like, you know, oh, the, the you know, the they were talking about like the formulation of the NRA and they were like, you know, before we were, when we understood that this was a militia right um, with the Second Amendment. And I just thought that was kind of interesting because I'm like, well, we've been fighting mad fights since like they, <laughs> they ratified it, you know? Um, so it's not like it wasn't a topic of conversation. So I think that that's interesting that they're trying to identify and, and, and there are rules for it as both an individual right and also militia right depending on the state by the 1800s you know so it's it's you know this this quagmire that you know goes on for a long time um but i guess we should start transitioning to let's talk about the 1800s um because there are the slave codes um that ultimately come up into the civil war um and so individual states are, especially, I'm like scrolling through Louisiana, South Carolina, Florida, which are um, not only banning self-defense and firearms of, you know, African-Americans. Um, here's Louisiana, 1806. Uh, slave was denied the use of firearms and all other offensive weapons. Um, but then, and there's some that says that they can, you know, African-Americans can own firearms, but they have to get permission. 
Um, you know, and who's, I, I don't know, you know, who's necessarily offering permission for that. Um, homes being searched uh, for firearms, you know, and all of this is pretty much like the early 1800s through up through, you know, the Civil War. And a lot of states are getting involved in, you know, making this limitation on, um, on African Americans. Um, and they're, you know, a lot of them are called the slave codes, but they also get, you mm -hmm. know, in the post-Civil War period when, you know, during the after the Emancipation Proclamation, they become more of the black codes. But there are there are provisions in here because there are acknowledgments that there are still free blacks, um, you know, in this time period, and they are oftentimes uh, worded specifically in these laws. And I think it's important you touched on it there because you mentioned about like there's some rules in this time period start to appear about you know carrying, um, not just for not just for African Americans but for anybody, um, and to me. It, reading it, like as we researched when we were writing for the museum script and as we've researched like for this episode and just as we've had these conversations before and then we, you know, go look up or like, are we actually talking anywhere near the truth? Um, and it's easy from our modern perspective, I think to, especially in the sort of gun community to think of this as like one continuous ebb towards like more restrictive over time you know, like, oh, the 19th century, nobody cared about gun laws. Like, that's not a thing. You know, the, it's it's a modern move. And you, we think of like the Brady Bills and the, the you know, the federal assault weapons ban and stuff like that. Like those are, that's when gun control became a thing. But really like this stuff, this is around. Like it's, we like to think that there was just the second amendment until the NFA was introduced in 1934. And like, there's this big gap but there really isn't. There's a, there's a very wide body of firearms law that I think gets overlooked quite a bit. And I think it do, does come back to that conversation of the state versus the nation. Right. And, you know, when you start talking about today, you're often, you know, although there's a lot of state stuff that goes on, but a lot of times, you know, people are referencing the national laws um, and the impact right. of a national law um, on everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it is interesting that, you know, we're, they're having these legal debates about the Second Amendment. They're having these legal debates about who can own firearms, what type of firearms, not just who can own them, but it, can you defend yourself? Because, you know, we're not, I, I will already say that next week we're not going to get into self-defense laws um but you know there are laws in states that say and by self-defense laws i'm meaning specifically like do you have the right to self-defense within a state because there are states mm -hmm. where you don't have the right to self-defense when i lived in delaware i'm pretty sure delaware was a state that you did not have the right to self-defense um and so though like there there's just so much complication going on with this um you know and and to go um because i do think this gets overlooked a lot and and we can bring it up again in the post-civil war period but a lot of these laws too do impact native americans you know native americans are owning and using firearms but as technology advances their ability whether it's a legal you know, an actual legal decree or just like a policy, um, you know, it becomes more and more difficult as the technology advances for them to acquire ammunition mm -hmm. for the more modern guns. Um, people who are selling them ammo, they're selling it super expensive. Um, so there's a private market enterprise here as well that can be limiting um, to people. Because when we were doing research with the Plains Indian Museum for the new museum, that was one of the bigger things that I was unaware of was like how discriminatory like individuals and companies were to make sure that there were all of these expenses on ammunition. So yeah, Native Americans may have had firearms, but when you're looking at like self-contained cartridges, like the 
acquisition of self-contained cartridges was not that easy for them. Um, right. And so, you know, you've got all this stuff going on, you know, not just in the South with African-Americans and poor, you know, rural whites. Um, you have this going on, you know, as we move West, you have this going on everywhere. You know, this, this individual state concept of who's owning them and then how difficult can, like, and if we can't pass that legal law, how difficult can we as individuals make it for them? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's almost like as time goes on, when the, when the tribes are still, you know, mostly autonomous in the early days and the early colonial period, um, and there's still several viable, like, European governments involved in the colonies, like, they can always play one off of the other to get firearms. But as that becomes, you know, mostly just the English or, like, the English and the French, or um, then finally becomes America, like, as that encroachment happens further and further, like, obviously that brings more restrictions on like the trade as the government gets more control and then yeah then it's like it's it becomes it is its own other nuanced debate of how extensive was firearms used how readily did they have access um, did native americans have access um but yeah so we've been talking about the pre-civil war era so we should hit on lead up for a while (laughs) yeah we should finish off that and then move into the post-civil war era because there's a there's a pretty distinct shift with all the changes that the civil war brings about, especially um, the legal changes and the new amendments and um, the end of slavery that brings out a whole new set of rules around firearms. Yeah. And, you know, so obviously during the civil war, you get the emancipation proclamation. And I already mentioned that, you know, the slave codes, some, you know, go into the black codes, you know, in the South where mm-hmm. you can't really, you know, necess- you know, you, you have a completely different system and like pretty much immediately after the, you know, the civil war is, and uh, well, right before, and then as the civil war is ending, there are these, okay, so now that, you know, slaves or enslaved peoples have been freed, you know, okay, yeah, sure they can carry, but they have to get permission from mm-hmm. the military or the police. So they're, they have to be in the military, you know, like it's like, it's immediately like, okay, so this thing happens. So now, <laughs> so now how does everybody shift? Yeah, it's like, well, all right, we're forced to allow this now on a technicality. So then how do we work around that technicality to make sure it's not actually enacted? Yeah. Um, and so some of the first ones you see are the, what are generally called like the Army Navy laws. Yes. Do you want to talk about those? Um, yeah, there's actually a good, I think there's a quote on this link on 1870. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, the first Saturday night special economic handgun pass. So this is where it starts to get into that world. You know, so there's laws after the Civil War where it's like, you know, black people, like if you're not in the military, then you have to get permission or you can't. Uh, like, so there's still those race-based, you know, topics of conversation that are occurring right immediately after the Civil War. But then all of a sudden, you know, in 1870 in Tennessee, there's an act passed and it's, quote, an act to preserve the peace and prevent homicide, end quote, which banned the sale of all handguns except the expensive Army and Navy model handguns. Um, and, you know, and this is where I feel like we start getting creative or maybe they were creative like this with like the handgun ban on the wheel lock. I don't have the specific wording on that, but basically like they ban specific types of firearms. So now it's, it's not a race thing or it's not, you know, it's, you know, these, just these handguns, they, these inexpensive handguns, they, they're, 
they need to be regulated. And, and that's, and that's one of those things where it gets out of just the realm of race and also just economic class. So now, you know, if we go back to Europe, rich people can have guns, but poor people can't, you know, it's. Right. We could probably, I mean, we could do a whole episode just on like the history of the cheap handgun. Um, because this is where it, I, I really like the title of this cause we see it, I think today, and this is like my own sort of synthesized view of it, but you know, politicians naming something this really like pleasant name, like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm definitely for that name. And then you read the law and it's like, Whoa, wait, what? what? Like, you know, Oh yeah, I, I don't, I want to prevent homicide. That sounds great. What are they actually doing in this law? They're preventing the sale of anything but full size revolvers. Um, which were more expensive and all, all of a sudden then it's now much harder for, you know, a newly free black or a poor white to get a handgun. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's this work, it's that workaround, you know, all right, we can't specifically say that, you know, free blacks can't have guns anymore. So we'll do it this way and to get to where we want. And we'll put this nice sounding name on it. Um, and and I think that's, you know, it only takes a couple of years after the end of the Civil War for that to, to that to be introduced and then to spread around the rest of the the South. Yeah, and like you know, and with the formulation of the KKK, there's there's laws that try to stop the KKK, and then those laws are overturned, and it's it's a mess. It's yeah, a it's mess. it's like <laughs> it's such a checkerboard of like what's going on where, and it changes so rapidly. Um, you could dedicate an entire academic career to like well, people do trying to suss all this out. Unfortunately, as we've talked in the past, academics haven't gotten into firearms as much. Maybe from a maybe a legal history is pretty robust, one. actually. Um, you know, the scholars on both sides, both pro and not anti Second Amendment, but different interpretations of the Second Amendment. Right. Um, you know, and you know, it's there are people that really, really study this. And so for us, we're kind of taking a, an overview, a macro historical lens to it um, as a means to to track trends. But it is it's it's just such an amazingly complicated situation. And and one of the things that I find, you know, interesting when you're talking to a lawyer is, you know, they'll say, well, you know, and, and this goes for both sides of the debate. So the pro-gun side, you mentioned like a lot of times we don't hear a lot about these earlier laws, you know, because um, I would say if I were, you know, from a pro-gun state, you don't want to set precedent, you know, and, and, and in reality, I disagree with that statement of setting precedent. Like I get where that comes from in the legal world, but like, just because these laws exist didn't mean that they weren't messed up or that they even worked. Um, you know, so you get kind of an obfuscation of it from that side, but then at the same time, you get kind of an, you get an obfuscation of it from the gun control side, because like when you start digging into this history, I mean, you cannot deny <laughs> a lot of the ugliness and where these laws originated from. You know, and so you know, when they specifically word it, you know, Native Americans or Indians can't have firearms. I mean, so it's like it's not really appealing for either side to talk about, I guess. Right. Um, to some extent, whether it's concerned of a legal precedent or the concern of I want to pass this law today. But like, you know, for a century, we passed this law, you know, in a much more directly worded. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, that's a good point from the from the pro gun side, people generally don't want to admit that there's a lot of precedents for, you know, restrictions on firearms because, you know, like I said, it's almost imagine like 
all right, until the NFA came around, there wasn't any, like nobody cared. Um, but that's not the case. There were restrictions. Um, but from the pro gun control side, like you really don't want to dig into this stuff because <laughs> it's almost always rooted in racism of some flavor. Like it's racism or nepotism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's always pretty ugly. Economic roots. class. Yeah. I mean, it's always some type of bigotry. <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, and I can't I feel like that'd be painful to argue in a court of law, you know? <laughs> oh, that I would not want that lawyer's job. Yeah. Right. Um, so should we shift to but, the West? Yeah. We've done a good as, job as of explaining that the, the South is pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah. So at yeah. the same time that this stuff is going on, obviously, if you're talking about the 1870s, um, we have to talk about, you know, the American West and what's, you know, as the country expands, obviously all these new places institute their own gun laws. And in popular perception, the West is almost is displayed as a anything goes type of place. Um, that's that's what we have in our mind. Sorry, from, I was just singing the song. <laughs> but that's what we have in our mind from all the movies and that kind of thing. But it's it's its own sort of mess. And it's really hard to get at like what's going on because I've heard people argue that the West is not a violent place. Like it's portrayed, you know, there's like one murder in this particular town per, you know, every three years or five years. So it's, you know, it's really uncommon, but then I've heard other people argue that, yeah, that's one murder every so often, but the town was like 500 people. So statistically speaking, the murder rate was like a hundred and, you know, it was like, 10 or 50 or a hundred times what it would be in a modern setting. Um, so there's that. And then of course there's all the gun laws that go on top of that, that some of these most notorious Western towns would enforce really strict um, like carry bans if you're going into town. And that's where the popularization of the little pocket gun came in, you know, cause like we're people really like, they were like, Oh yeah, here's my giant coat. It's like all the people today who are like making the post on Facebook being like, Hey guys, I'm thinking about buying an AR 15 for the first time. You know, <laughs> or like I have five guns, you know, wink, uh, you know, mm -hmm. so it, like they're doing that back then. Um, and, and from, you know, the text that, you know, the late Herbert house who helped us with, you know, our gun laws in the West section in the museum, you know, it's a lot of, like at the end of like um, stagecoach trails, you get those laws popping up um, on, you know, banning carry inside the towns because they were worried that people would go, you know, pew pew, you know, in those saloons and stuff and whether or not that's true or would have happened, you know. All right. I'm going to put myself on a, like a, a limb here that somebody will instantly correct me, but in my mind's eye was not the fight at the okay corral. Like, the pretense was they had not surrendered their guns and they were still in town. Now you're making, Am I making, now you're making me sound bad because I suck at Western history. I suck at it too, but I've, I want to say like, I don't know, we'll get one of our viewers that'll comment yeah. or not viewers, listeners that'll comment, but it, it feels like to me, there's one of those famous gunfights that the actual, you know, there's a lot going on. It's not just, that's not the reason, but the pretense for the start of the fight was that, um, people were armed in town and they needed to be disarmed. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm laughing just because um, I was watching Drunk History a couple of weeks ago and I think it was like Billy the Kid and they were talking about like, yeah, this one story about in a saloon, this guy was drunk talking to Billy the Kid and he was like, you know, if I ever saw Billy the Kid, I'd shoot him around the spot. And so like Billy the Kid's like, oh, hey, I'm Billy the Kid. And then he shoots the guy 
um, yeah, the, like they like pan because the person's drunk and they go, you know, we'll leave a shot because you're an asshole. Boom, boom. <laughs> that's like the only thing that's been <laughs> in my head this whole time when I heard about this. Um, but then the other side of the West that's now stop laughing because this is actually one of the more serious parts of the American West that we can end on today mm. before we move into, which is the fact that, you know, we're talking about carry right now in the West, but there's also confiscation that happens to Native Americans pretty much prior to mm-hmm. most of the major massacres and, and wounded knees, you know, obviously the most often cited. And so we mentioned that there are laws in the colonies to prevent Native Americans from owning firearms. And then Native Americans do still have firearms, but then there's, you know, ways that it's difficult for them to get more modern technology. And then we're fighting, you know, in the Plains Indian Wars, we being the United States, not me personally. Um, but, you know, the, the United States is fighting, you know, the different uh, tribal nations out in the West. Um, and there are usually, you know, prior to these very, very large massacres, there is a firearms confiscation that occurs um, by the government to the native tribes. And in early reservation history as well, um, you, had to, you had to forfeit your firearm to be on the reservation. But it's also not like they had a choice as to whether or not they wanted to go on that reservation. Right. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the point of like, it's also hard to get at how this stuff is, you know, enforced. Like, I mean, obviously some of the famous massacres like are, are pretty well documented and we can see like, all right, this started over a fight, you know, they forced them to go somewhere they didn't want to go. And then to make sure they couldn't resist, they try to take all their guns and a fight breaks out and then a slaughter. But there's also this, you know, we're talking about like these really strict carry bans. Well, I'm sure if you're friends with the Marshall in the old West, you're probably not subject to that carry ban. And maybe nobody listens to as like a group like the James gang finds out when they go to rob a bank and then everybody in town pulls a gun on them. (laughs) Some those townspeople were either not under a ban or (laughs) did not care. What's the quote? Like, Oh, it's on our timeline. It's like, Hey boys, get your guns or something. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some great quote of like yeah. <laughs> when the town's like, Oh crap, we got to hire them up. And then they held them hostage. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, so there's all these sort of, you know, we're talking about in broad generalities of a topic that is um, there's so many narrow, narrow instances and exceptions. Like it's, I guess just that's a caveat to the whole thing is like, we're talking these generalities, but there's a lot, a lot of nuance to how all this plays out. And, you know, so I think that's probably a good place to end for this week because we will continue into um, this conversation next week. Um, And the, the world changes in the 20th century in so many, so many ways. And I know that sounds kind of like cliche. That darn electricity. (laughs) Tesla and Edison, man. Drunk history is in my head again. Um, but, um, you know, it really does change because of mass migration to the cities. Things are changing. They're fostering a more modern era. Uh, 1890s, there's a depression. I mean, it's it's just, it's it changes things. And it also changes the way that people perceive and discuss firearms. So we talked about the fact that, you know, in prior to the 20th century and these 20th century gun laws, that there are, you know, laws. And so, you know, that people are having conversations with firearms. But 
firearms become much more metaphor and symbol and a part of our every of our life. You know, the way that we talk, the way that we, you know, communicate. And that becomes a much bigger topic of conversation in the 20th century um, and the perception of guns in terms of violence. It, it really shifts. Um, when I talk about um, kind of the shifting and how we get to modern culture, I usually um, talk about the late 19th century and the post-World War II period um, as being very big moments in change for how guns are used, how they're perceived, and how they're talked about, which affect gun laws. So, if You said conversation with firearms in that in that point you made. And all I can picture now is those two guys on the timeline on horseback, like holding their guns up like this to shoot at each other. Oh, dude, we should do a, a podcast sometime on the artistic representation of guns because it's epic. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm just going to end on this. He was an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>